0: Brady play action, look at third option, inside, caught, Gronkowski again! All picked off, Dwight Smith, 25 20 15 15-10-5, to
1: touchdown Tampa Bay, there's the dagger, Bucs are going to beat the Raiders! Would it be the great curse has been lifted? There goes Michael Spurlock, and for the first time ever! The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have returned to kickoff for a touchdown. I'll start up the gut! Third and ten for Eric
0: Hipple. Selman putting pressure on Hipple. And the loose ball is picked up by Dave Logan.
1: And Logan is in for the touchdown. Let's go! Let's go! God, Go! beat the Eagles. Matt Bryan is my hero. To the seven and the ten to
2: the Let's 20. go! Goal this is the 46th season of tampa bay nfl football and the second one the buccaneers have entered as defending super bowl champions but of course it's not always been the way of going into a season with real expectations of success for buccaneer fans welcome to the Buckpower.com podcast my name is paul stewart team historian and the uk's most well-known buccaneer fan And following on from our first episode where we looked at a game from 1979 where the fortunes of the franchise began to turn, for this episode we're going to feature one of the most surprising results posted by a Tampa Bay team. Now the Bucs opened 2021 this week against Dallas and alongside that we're going to go back to one of the most memorable season openers in franchise history, a game that still remains one of the largest ever victories for the Buccaneers. It's September thirteenth, 1987, and it's Ray Perkins' first game as head coach against the Atlanta Falcons. Now, the Bucs were coming off two of their worst ever seasons, a pair of 2-14 and 14 campaigns under Lehman Bennett. The number one overall pick, Bo Jackson, had even refused to play for the franchise. These really were the darkest days for Buccaneer fans. Now, Ray Perkins had taken the New York Giants to the playoffs in 1981, before returning to his alma mater of Alabama to succeed the legendary Bear Bryant. He was convinced to return to the NFL by owner Hugh Culverhouse, who deemed him my Vince Lombardi.
1: And he connects with
0: Bill Freeman. And the Buccaneers are on the scoreboard. Touchdown, Gerald Carter. Mark Carrier, the receiver. As Tampa Bay scores yet another touchdown.
2: I have two very special guests joining me on this episode. The first of whom is Joey Johnston. Joey is a long-term writer and columnist for the Tampa Tribune who not only covered the Bucs but grew up with them as well. He sat through each of the home games during their infamous 0-26 start. He also co-authored the excellent book Tales from the Bucs Sideline with Chris Harry. Joey, what were your first impressions of Ray Perkins? Well,
1: certainly it was uh, a uh, it's my way or the highway kind of attitude for Ray Perkins was coming in from Alabama, but he had previously been the coach of the New York Giants. And his charge there was to change the attitude, change the culture, which he did. And I think the same charge was in place with with the Bucs. I remember the first uh, news conference. It was uh, all business and an icy stare if if you didn't uh, ask a question that he liked. And uh, so he he made it very clear that he was in charge, whether you were a media person or a player, and uh, the Ray Perkins era was uh, was one of a little, a little bit of fear, a little bit of trepidation on the players' parts. We quite knew where he was coming from. He wasn't a warm and fuzzy guy by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, Ray laid down the tracks and made sure that everybody knew that it was it was uh, it was his deal. And uh, people respected him, and
2: they certainly feared him. Ray Perkins served as his own general manager and orchestrated a rebuild of the roster through the 1987 draft as the NFL was still several years away from free agency. The first overall pick, of course, was Vinny Testaverdi, but subsequent selections brought Ricky Reynolds, Winston Moss, Mark Carrier, Bruce Hill and Ron Hall. A complete new passing game and two excellent defensive starters. This really was some draft. <laughs> Which he should be, and it, it wasn't successful in, in his four season. But one thing that, that, that happened, especially early on, he was a pretty good judge of talent. He brought some good players into the, the Bucs. And uh, as it turned out, some of them went on and, and played well with other teams as, as their careers went on. But his drafts were not bad at all. And his second year, he brought in Paul Gruber, uh, one of the best offensive linemen uh, that the Bucks have ever had. But 87 was, was really an influx of some really good young players. They actually had 20 draft picks in all uh, in that draft. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a major turnaround. I mean, Some guys exited, but he brought in some pretty good quality, some young players that, that formed the foundation of that 87 team. One of the most infamous parts of Ray Perkins' first season was to introduce three-a-day practice sessions in training camp. What do you remember about that? I
1: remember a lot of long days. I remember getting up early and coming home late because I was around covering covering that. They would start, I believe, uh, memory serves, 7 or 7.30 a.m. was the first workout. And then you had uh, one in the early afternoon and then one in the evening. And, uh, again, I think with all these young players, I don't know if they knew any different. They just thought this was what the NFL was. I guess they thought every NFL team had three-a-days. But uh, again, he was laying down the tracks for an attitude and a, and a culture, a way of doing things. And uh, for the most part, everybody just, you know, went in, with, in lockstep and did, did as he uh, as he commanded. I think in, in retrospect, as time went on, when players looked back, other, that's when the complaints started. They talked about, oh my God, we had three-a-days. I think the legend of those has only grown in, in, in later years, but at the time,
2: One of the most popular Buccaneer players ever was at centre in this game, one of 104 games he started in the orange colours. Randy Grimes was the second round pick out of Baylor in 1983, and he never missed a start under coach Ray Perkins. Randy, 1987 was your sixth year in Tampa, but your third head coach, how different was Ray Perkins to John McKay and Lehman Bennett?
3: Oh wow, when you think about coach McKay, you think about just real old school and you know, he just was so set in his ways and, you know, he had such a rhythm and a system for everything, whether it was right or wrong or whether it worked or not, you know, that didn't matter, but he was not going to deviate from that system. You know, Coach Fonts did a lot of the coaching back then, too, and, uh, you know, it, it was uh, it, it, it was more like a history lesson coming in there, you know, of, of how things used to be, especially going back to the old days of USC. You know, Coach Lehman, Coach Bennett, you know, I just uh, I felt like he always knew that he was only there for a short time. You know, I felt like he came in knowing that he was a, a journeyman and that he was going to be back to selling RVs in Atlanta at, at any point, you know. So I never really, and I never really felt like his heart was in it. But then comes Coach Perkins, and God rest his soul, he was good to me, and he loved players that played hard. But, man, that was that junction boy mentality, you know, going back to Bear Bryant and what he put those players through back in, out in West Texas, you know, when he was at Texas A&M. And that was that mentality, you know, where not only if you don't practice hard, then you're not going to play hard, you know, that old thing. Then again, you think, wow, I played 10 years because I survived all those years of three-a-days and living at the University of Tampa and and, uh, all those practices that we had. And then, Paul, we would go into the gym over there at the University of Tampa and practice if we were still out on the grass. So, you know, I talk about that a lot nowadays, how that mentality cost people years off of their career, you know, because we just beat the hell out of each other all week long. And hopefully there was enough left in the gas tank to play on Sunday. And now you see guys with the new collective bargaining agreement and the the way practices are set up, you know, you hardly ever see them have pads on. And I think it extends career, obviously it does. I think there's less injuries as a result of practice you don't hear about those practice injuries anymore or like you used to. So, I mean, the CBAs come a long way, and I think it's also proved that that mentality was wrong, that if you don't practice hard, you can still play hard. You know, I can remember being so tired before kickoff on Sunday, and these other teams are coming in out of Colorado or, or Wisconsin or Minnesota, and, you know, they've had a light week and cool weather, And man, they would come out there just bouncing around ready to go. Here we were just dragging out of the locker room because we'd been beating the hell out of each other in 100 degree heat all
2: week. So what was happening in the world on September 13th, 1987?
1: From ABC News, this is World News This Morning.
2: Ronald Reagan was just over midway through his second term as president and Margaret Thatcher had just won her third general election. Lorne Green, star of Bonanza and the original Colonel Adama in Battlestar Galactica had just passed away. In Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, a radioactive element was stolen from a disused hospital leading to radiation poisoning in the area and to the perpetrators. And of course the story was picked up by the writers of 24 for a future series with Jack Bauer. The NFL season of course always clashes with the US Open tennis and the champions in 1987 were Martina Nafratilova and Ivan Lendl. In baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays hit 10 home runs in a single game against the Baltimore Orioles. As we said in episode 1, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The fourth MTV Music Awards had just taken place, and Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer, one of the greatest videos ever made, took 10 awards. La Bamba by Los Lobos was number one in the Billboard charts, and was also a number one album taken over from Whitney by Whitney Houston. The UK number one was the legendary Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. Stakeout Out of La Bumba were the top films, although this was the week the fatal attraction had just been released and pet rabbits everywhere went into hiding. Once again, there was a Bond film you could go and see, Timothy Dalton's debut as 007 in The Living Daylights. Down in Tampa, it was 81 degrees and overcast at kickoff, with 51,250 in attendance. The 4,500 no-shows would eventually wind up regretting their decision to give this one a miss. Coach Ray Perkins was in a shirt and tie on the Buccaneer sideline, as the NFL rules on coaching staffs wearing branded logos was not in effect in 1987, although this look would just be a one-year thing for the coach. He'd also moved the Buck sideline across the field to the north side where they were in the sun, but also facing the cameras. James Brown and former Bear Dan Jiggetts were calling the game for CBS. They did five games that year it was brown's first season calling games and of course he's now the studio host of fox sports nfl game day he would wind up doing 21 buccaneer games in all over the next seven years now the bucks had lost five straight season openers the last time they'd won was 1981 against minnesota the previous season steve Deberg threw a record seven interceptions as the bucks opened that season with a 31-7 loss to san francisco with our previous guest Dennis Crawford in attendance. Bobby Futrell bobbled the opening kickoff, and Steve DeBerg led the Tampa offense out on their own 9 yard line. Two long completions to Mark Carrier and James Wilder on third downs kept the drive alive, and the Bucks had third and goal at the Falcon 11 yard line.
1: DeBerg. And
0: he connects with Bill Freeman. And the Buccaneers are on the scoreboard did exactly what he had to do now watch you're going to see the ball go directly down the middle of the field again the only guy that can catch it is Phil Freeman he's
2: the only guy there the offense had gone 91 yards on 13 plays and the Bucks led 7-0 they had led only once in their final seven games of the 1986 season so the crowd was understandably surprised as well as being excited on the next drive Ron Holmes sacked David Archer and the Buccaneers took over at their own 24-yard line after an Atlanta punt they then began an 11-play drive that reached the Falcons' six-yard line.
0: Pro set for the Bucks. Touchdown! Gerald Carter, eighth year out of Texas a The team's
1: possession receiver.
2: Many Buccaneer fans would not be aware of Gerald Carter and his role on the team in the 1980s.
1: Gerald Carter, I think, is one of the most underrated Bucks of all time. Uh, a a late-round not a guy that uh, anybody had high expectations for, but all he did was make plays and just play with, with utter consistency throughout his whole career. And he was like that as a person, very you know, even keel, dependable, uh, easygoing, uh, nice to deal with. And on the field, he was the guy that could make the big catch and, and get the chains moving. Uh, he grew into a, a, a very serviceable NFL wide receiver. He, uh, that was drafted as low as he was so I think he's one of the better success stories the Bucks have ever had and as you mentioned still in the record books, still still hanging on uh, and some of those first speeding charts all time so that says it all about what Jerome Carter is able to do the Bucks.
2: two drives two touchdowns and even Donald Ego Buicay's substance touchback was met by huge cheers from the incredulous fans The Falcons got themselves onto the scoreboard when English kicker Mick Luckhurst booted a 50-yard field goal. You knew Mick Luckhurst pretty well, didn't you, Bob? Yes, I did, and he preceded me by a few years as a presenter of the NFL here on British television. Mick had a seven-year NFL career with the Falcons, and when he retired at the end of the 1987 season, he was one of the most accurate kickers in NFL history. He took over presenting the British coverage in 1988 as the two previous presenters had done such an appalling job they almost killed the sport off here in the UK. Mick Luckhurst did so much to resurrect the sports in this country and of course he had the instant credibility of being a player with actual game experience. He played four games against the Bucks but he only finished on the winning side once. It's funny he only, he only ever wants to talk about that game when we see each other these days. Any Falcon hopes were short-lived. 80 yards on 11 plays by the Buccaneer offence and it was 2nd and 10 at the Falcon 11 yard line. McGee was one of the holdovers in the previous regime and was holding off rookie Ron Hall for the starting tight end position. It then got even worse for the Falcons. Woods only played five games for the Buccaneers having arrived from the Pittsburgh Steelers. This interception was his one big moment in a Tampa Bay uniform. He returned the interception down to the Falcons two-yard line where it did not take long for the Buccaneers to reach the end zone again. Steve DeBerg had now led four drives and all four ended with touchdown passes. The Buccaneer fans at the Old Sombrero were beginning to wonder if they were dreaming. Donald Igurobuike though missed the extra point to leave the Bucs ahead 27-3. So if he'd made it, Atlanta would have been down 28-3. Their favourite scoreline. What was Steve DeBerg like to interview? He was wonderful to interview. Uh, He was the best. Uh, He he gave us everything we needed. Uh, just a, a total joy, a very, very interesting guy, very quotable, very friendly with, with the media. We, we really, Steve DeBerg, to deal with. In fact, I remember very distinctly, uh, Sports Illustrated came in. Jill Lieber at the time was the writer. She came in to do a profile of Steve DeBerg, and she came, uh, before speaking to him, came back to visit with us back at in the infamous uh, media trailer at One Buck Place. And, uh,
1: you know, we just, we, we, we told her. I said, "My gosh, this is going to be. You're going to enjoy this because Steve is going to be a, a, a joy to deal with, which he, which he was." And I remember we didn't have to talk about too much uh, to her, but uh, but we couldn't have more better things to say about the, about Steve Berg as a guy. He was he was uh, wonderful to deal with in good times, but also in bad times.
2: Steve DeBerg had the reputation of being a bit of a joker, but also a real clubhouse leader. Are there any stories you can share with us about him?
3: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> not None that I can really tell. <laughs> none that you can uh, repeat, anyway. But i tell you what, man, he was a guy, especially as a young offensive lineman, he was a guy that you wanted to come back to the huddle and see, because... Yeah, he was always joking around, but he was also, he had this air of confidence about him that you always knew that he was in control. He was in charge. He knew what he was doing, what he wanted to do. Kind of like the same thing Brady brings to the huddle now, you know. And I always said whether Brady's arm was 100% or not, you know, I didn't know what he was going to bring to this team athletically, but I know that in that huddle, those young players need to see that confidence, and they need to—they need to see somebody in charge who, who's going to help them drive that ball down the field. And that's what Steve always was for me. He was a guy that I loved to come back to the huddle to. I always knew he was in control. He was always joking, but you always knew that he was in control. And you know, I'd snap a ball over his head, or I'd roll one back there on a shotgun snap or something, and he would—he would just rip me up and down. And, uh, but I needed that, you know, because he was in charge. He was the leader and he was always trying to make something happen.
2: He didn't have a lot
3: to work with, as you know, but he was always trying to make something happen and uh, just a fun guy in the locker room. He was a fun guy to be out on the town with Uh, everybody loved him. You know, he'd light up a room in 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 an instant and uh, he's still like that. I just—I was just with him over at a training camp a couple of weeks ago. He's still that same person, and you can tell that by the by the pictures that you see on Facebook uh, of him out on the golf course or at different places. So, I mean, I love that guy, and uh, I learned a lot about professional football from Steve Deberg.
2: Only the end of the first half could stop the Buccaneer offense. Deberg would throw a pick to Scott Case early in the third quarter, but it did not take long for the Buccaneer defense to do their thing. Gutrell sadly passed away shortly after his career ended in 1990, but I've been able to provide his family with many highlight clips of his career with the Bucks, including this interception. The Buccaneer scoring onslaught then continued. of Mark Carrier's 27 Buccaneer touchdowns and it's only recently his franchise records have been eclipsed by Mike Evans Joey how would you regard Mark Carrier? Uh, One of the best
1: in Buccaneers' annals for sure Um, and and again another very nice personnel move by Ray Perkins to uh, to pluck him out of a small school in in Louisiana and uh, Mark Carrier uh, had a trial on fire as a rookie better and better. By the end of the, his rookie season, he was one of the best receivers in the NFL uh, and, and had a great career uh, with the Bucs. Some of the best
2: receiving seasons the Bucs have ever had. So I would regard him uh, as one of the best moves the Bucs have ever made. And, uh, and as you know, he we went on to have a good success with other NFL franchises as well. But certainly next to Benny, uh, uh, who, who, who had some nice as a, rookie, Charrier, was a was a, a standout rookie, made small teams a draft. This was DeBerg's fifth touchdown pass of the game, a new franchise record beating the one he set in 1985 against Miami. The Falcons did get on the board when Stacy Bailey caught a 34yard touchdown pass from backup quarterback Scott Campbell, and no, it was not Rod Toast Jones being beaten on this one for once. The Bucks now had all their backups in the game, except, somewhat surprisingly, the one player everyone wanted to see, rookie QB Vinny Testaverdi. Fellow draft pick Steve Bartalo got his chance to carry the ball and he scored his one and only NFL touchdown with just under four minutes remaining in the game. <laughs> Stee still lives in the Bay Area and his two sons have both been Tampa High School stars in recent years. The final score was 48-10, a franchise record for points that was only tied in 2001 against the Saints and then of course in Super Bowl 37. It was only beaten in 2019 when the Bucks hung 55 on the Rams. In this game, they outgained the Falcons 460 yards to 197. They were incredible, 14 of 16 on third downs. Steve DeBerg was 24 of 34 for 333 yards and five scores. So what was it like to celebrate such a big win as this, especially coming off the back of those two Lehman Bennett seasons?
3: Yeah, it, it, it was awesome. And, and if, I'm not, if I remember right, didn't we go up and practice against them? Yeah, we went up to Atlanta and we practiced against them before we played. a matter of fact, I remember that because that was against Tony Casillas, and uh, it was one of the, maybe one of the best games that I ever played. And, and you know, I, I'd been blocking against him all week, you know. I, I knew what he was going to do, and, and I have to assume that he knew what I was going to do. And he came in with all the, you know, first-round accolades and Outland Trophy, all that stuff, you know. And and uh, I, I can just remember that being one of my best games. I remember Coach Helton, my offensive line coach at the time, you know, he even told me that. You know, that was, that was maybe one of the best games I ever saw center play. And uh, so that's what I remember most about that game. But you're right, that was a big win. We needed that. We needed to start that season off like that. And, uh, of course, it didn't end up after 16 weeks that great, but it was huge. that was a huge victory for us. And and I, the bad thing about it is I, I think it kind of was an indication to Coach Perkins that whatever he was doing was working, you know. <laughs> and that's not good.
2: The Tampa media had trouble taking this one in. The late great Tom McEwen in the Tampa Tribune only one person in this universe could have foretold what happened at Tampa Stadium on Sunday. God. The late, great Huber Meisel of the St. Petersburg Times, he even said his portable computer had no chip to handle such a victory. He figured he would wake up the following morning and find a Bucks in a shower with Bobby Ewing, realising it was all a dream. Ray Perkins ran off the field and even swiped a hat off a state trooper. He said Steve De Berg one, played one of the best games of any quarterback he'd ever been associated with. He said he looked up, saw 3 minutes 48 left in the third quarter and couldn't believe we were punting for the first and last time. Steve De Berg told Vinny Testaverde on the sidelines, I'm just setting some records for you to break later on. Back in the CBS studios, Brent Musburger and Dick Vermeil, hosting the game show, were as stunned as anyone but maintained their calm professionalism while Tampa Stadium was going completely insane.
1: about one Benny Testaverde, and now they must sing the praises of Steve DeBerg. Five touchdown passes. Can you
0: believe that explosion by Ray Perkins' team today? He's had to be preparing for this league opener three or four weeks into the preseason to execute that well. Now, do most coaches focus in on their opening game the way Perkins did with the Buccaneers? Well, I'm not sure what Ray has done, but whatever he did, he did right. And I think most coaches spend a percentage of the time in preparation for preseason games they push toward the league opener. It was said to be one of the toughest training camps of all.
2: This game took place just before the players' strike. What do you remember of that?
3: Well, I remember losing seven game checks. I'll never forget that. Uh, you know, that, that was a tough time on all of us because we all just wanted to play football. You know, everybody wanted to be out on that field and doing what they love. and But we also didn't want to be that one that crossed the line, you know. And when when the, the strike first started, it was it was all for one and one for all. It was nobody was going to cross a line. I think there was one or two, you know. But then the longer that thing dragged out, you know, you started seeing some guys saying, "Hey, you know, what what's going on here? What's what's Gene Upshaw really up to? You know, where where are we going with this thing? What are we trying really trying to achieve?" And you know, we were trying to get together and doing some small stuff, but. You know when you know when a bunch of bucks get together, there you know it's going to wind up being something other than a than a good practice. And uh, but we did the best we could to stay in
1: shape. You know we I can still remember uh, I, I I
3: forget who they were, which union, whether it was a longshoreman or what, but I can remember them coming over to the Hall of Fame Inn next door to uh, Buck Place and, and, and having this big meeting with us and, and teaching us how to strike and, and <laughs> what to do during the strike and how to react and, and what kind of signs to make and you know, and all that you know I can remember those guys none of us none of the players but I can remember those guys standing in the lock in the uh, parking lot and launching grapefruits over the fence onto the practice field you know those guys were a real deal. You know they knew how to do it, and uh, they were going they, they were there to show us how to do it. But you know I can remember standing on that balcony, overlooking the practice field from the Hall of Fame, and having all those signs and shouting and picketing out front and picketing at the stadium and all that. And, and those poor guys, those—you uh, uh, know—I hate to call them scabs because they just wanted to play too. But those poor guys, you know, they—they were—they were in the middle of it. Uh, they were doing the best they can. A lot of them got opportunities as a result of that. But uh, I'll never forget those days. But I'll also never forget those seven game checks. And, you know, to this day, I don't think I've ever gotten a letter from any of these young players saying thank you. Because we we, we really went out on the limb and we really sacrificed a lot for the collective bargaining agreements that they have now.
2: The Bucks would then lose the following week to the still-powerful Chicago Bears, but Testa Verdi would throw his first NFL pass in mop-up duty. The players' strike then curtailed any developments for a month, although the b bucks as they were known, went 2-1, and, and the entire saga would lead to an excellent film starring Keanu Reeves and Gene Hackman. I'm definitely going to feature one of the replacement team games in a future episode of this podcast. The return game against the Bears... NFL Week 6 that year, and one also shown on British television, would see the Bucs blow an early 20-0 lead, although this would be totally overshadowed by the unbelievable loss to the St. Louis Cardinals when the Bucs lost in spite of leading 28-3 going into the fourth quarter. Seven more consecutive losses followed, and Ray Perkins' team would end the year at 4-11, albeit with Vinny Testaverde starting the final four games at quarterback. Are you still in touch with any of your colleagues from the Buccaneer offensive line?
3: a few and probably most of that's my fault and uh, being out over on the on the east coast didn't help for the last 12 years Or being in Houston for 20 years after I retired didn't help but you know there's some like Sean I still stay in touch with and uh, Rick Mallory and I'm trying to reconnect with Ron Heller now but he's had a great career coaching in the league and, and of course Jerry Bell and some of these guys that live right here yeah you know so uh it's fun to be back over in Tampa. Uh, I told you earlier that we just moved from West Palm back to St. Pete, so we're back in the area and reconnecting with uh, not only some of the players that, that I played with, but other guys that live here from, from all over the country.
2: What is Randy Grimes doing now, almost 40 years after you were drafted by the Bucks?
3: Randy Grimes in 2021, I don't probably the, the same thing I've been up to for the last 12 years and if anybody knows my story, you know, I, I I was that guy who was willing to do whatever I had to, to stay out on the field. And what that looked like was uh, taking handfuls of pain pills every day to practice and play through those nagging injuries and, and, and the pain that, that I had. Because I was not going to let somebody else be out there in my position at any cost, you know. And I was never going to be that guy who got a reputation of always being in the training room or always being on the injury report or always always uh, uh, missing practice i was not going to be that guy so you know my solution was taking handfuls of uh pain pills and practicing and playing through all that you know i never expected to take what i thought was a necessary evil into my private life which my retired life which was really a full-blown addiction it wasn't a necessary evil at that point it was a full-blown addiction And, and paul you know for the next 20 plus years i couldn't couldn't get that under control until uh, September 22nd of 2009. That's when I finally put up my hand and asked for help. And, you know, it it took that long unfortunately because of pride, ego, guilt, shame, all those things, you know, for me to raise my hand and say that I didn't have any control over this anymore. So that's like I said to September 22nd of 2009. I went to treatment in West Palm uh, from Houston, Texas and uh, after uh, After I stayed there and did all that, I just stayed in West Palm. Um, My wife came and moved out with me, and, uh, you know, we've been in that industry ever since. I started a nonprofit called Pro Athletes in Recovery because, Paul, when I came into treatment 12 years ago, there was no resources out there for former NFL players. And uh, so I wanted – I needed to have something to be a bridge between the NFL – players that were out there and I I knew there was a lot of guys out there doing exactly what I was doing and that was self-medicating injuries they got while they played in the league and for the same reasons they weren't putting up their hand and asking for help and it was usually guilt, shame, pride, ego but also because they knew that there was no resources out there so I had to get the word out that there was resources available for former players and uh, so that's what Athletes in Recovery was all about. The NFL started an organization called the Player Care Foundation. I started working with them, reaching out to these guys. We were able to help so many former NFL players with substance abuse and mental health issues that Major League Baseball got involved with the baseball assistance team. And then it just really started snowballing with NHL and the NBA and Crazy sports like the Jockeys Guild and the and NASCAR Motorsports Safety Group and and uh, the the the, uh, the the WGA and the PGA and all these different organizations that have a former player organization and uh, it's just been a real blessing to be for me. To stay connected to a game that I love so much, and and really to a team that I love so much, because the Bucks have been so supportive of me, and uh, especially Coach Aaron's, and I don't really know him, but you know I've emailed him a few times, and that guy will write me right back and give me a an answer or a response. So I'm I'm, I'm really happy with um, with where everything is right now. So. Right now, I'm 12 years sober, still doing ProAthletesInRecovery.org, and uh, you know I'm just grateful for life right now.
2: Randy, thank you so much for taking the time to be part of this podcast.
3: Thank you very much for this opportunity, buddy.
2: So, in hindsight, which is always 2020, did Ray Perkins get it right or wrong with his 1987 plans in trying to make up for the Lehman Bennett disaster? the future didn't quite turn out as as, as we all thought, that he would throw 35 interceptions in his second year in 1988. But uh, I I actually liked what he did with with uh, having Dever kind of set the table and, get, and give Benny a chance to, to uh, get his teeth into the league. the 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 thing that the, the thing that happened, the, the team just fell.
1: that was that they had to move on so I think in a way Ray Perkins uh, set the table nicely with some good talent but uh, in, in terms of in game decisions and game management once they lost that Cardinal game uh, nothing good came after that
2: Joey thank you for taking the time to be in this podcast where can people read more of your work well you can log on to joeyjohnstoncommunications.com Days, whether it's old, old work the Tampa or current things i uh, now so that would probably be your best bet. I who check in and, and, and look at what I'm doing these days. And there we have what still remains the biggest opening day victory in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They are 18 and 27 all-time in season openers heading into their 2021 game with Dallas but in terms of shock results this one will remain top of the list for many more years to come. And as we've already covered, the 9.37 Bucks would go on to finish 4-11 in with two of those wins coming from the replacement team. We'll be covering one of those games in a future episode. For now, my thanks to my special guests on this episode, Joey Johnston and Randy Grimes, and also to Al Needham and TJ Reeves. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you download it from and recommend it to any other Buccaneer fans you know. You can contact me, Paul Buckpower Stewart, via Facebook or Twitter or by email at buckpower.com.